Hello, space policy enthusiasts. Welcome to the Space Policy Pioneers podcast. My name is Andy Williams, and I'm the director of Science in Space, a niche space policy consultancy firm. On this podcast, we'll talk to leading space policy experts and hear their informative and inspirational career stories to help you, the listener, learn about the different career paths in space policy and the skills you need to be successful. If you enjoy this podcast, please help us by leaving a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform and sign up for more information and career resources at www.scienceinspace.co.uk. One final note before we begin, all guests are talking in their personal capacity and are not representing any official position of their former or current employing organization. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not legal or investment advice. Our guest today is Laura Delgado Lopez. Laura is a senior policy analyst in the policy branch of the NASA Science Mission Directorate, and she was just awarded a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellowship. So she's just starting a research sabbatical at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So welcome to the Space Policy Pioneers podcast, Laura. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Laura, so you've had a long and illustrious career in space policy, which we will get to, uh, but you started out doing a BA in political science and then an MA um, at George Washington University on science and technology policy. So at that time, were you looking for a career in space policy? What was your thinking back then? I like to say that I sort of landed on space or stumbled on it. It happened between those two degrees. So when I was studying my undergraduate degree in Puerto Rico, I applied for an opportunity to do an internship here in the Washington, D.C. area on the Hill in Congress. And one of my duties as an intern was to sort the mail. And I remember coming across this periodical at the time that Space News used to publish every week. And once I found out that no one else wanted to keep them and started hoarding them, because it just seemed incredible to me that you could fill the pages of a periodical like that with news of stuff going on related to space. And so that piqued an interest that and being able to sit at hearings and just learn about different things. And I met, uh, but who met with me at Massa Goddard up in Greenville, Maryland, and talked me through kind of very rough one-on-one on space policy. And it seemed like it could be a thing, right? And so I went back to Puerto Rico, finished my degree, and decided then that for graduate school, I would try my best to focus on space and try to figure out a path that way. But yes, I absolutely did not intend to go into this career at all. When I was dreaming up of careers as a child, I knew very little about space. So when I went to graduate school, I, I really focused on catching up and just getting myself up to a point where I could talk intelligently about it. That's interesting because I would say a large majority of the people that I know in the space sector, they, they always had a, a very, very strong passion and interest. So I'm always curious when I find someone who um, space found them later on. And I guess that you were interested in politics and policy because you chose a degree in those subjects. Yes. 
I, the time. I like what I like about space, ironically, it's not so much the what, but the how. And so what attracted me to it was this very complex interplay between all these different actors. The fact that almost everything you do in space involves governments and academia and the private sector and civil society, all that mix of interests is really what drew me and, and attracted me and, and made me think that, okay, I'm not a scientist, I'm not an engineer, but I'm, I'm good at this and, and I get this. And so I can find a spot in this field. And so I will say I've made a, a, a theme when I talk to young professionals and students and anyone interested about space to really emphasize that you don't have to have that emotional connection to space. If you have it, that's great, right? I mean, who else thinking you wanted to be an astronaut or figure out what's going on in the moons of Jupiter. And that's, that's awesome, but it's not a, it shouldn't be a requirement because a lot of us came to space later on and really found a home and, and find it really interesting and a fulfilling career without, without having that particular connection. Yeah, I think that's, that is great advice. So what happened after that then, after you finished your master's, can you walk us through your career? Yeah, sure. Um, and I will say, even I didn't really know that this experiment had worked out until after, well, after the degree, when I decided to go into graduate school, I applied to 11 schools, which is way too many. <laughs> and I had those two paths, the space science policy path, and then the more traditional public policy, political science path, because I thought, well, that seems more certain. And so it really came down to the... I had financial need and scholarship that I was offered by the Space Policy Institute really made it possible that, and I got, oh, I was awarded a Truman Fellowship as well. And so the two of them made it possible for me to go to George Washington. So I'm incredibly thankful because obviously the rest is history. But so I go into this career, into this degree. Like I said, I'm catching up. I'm trying to learn as much as I can. I finish and I go and start working at a small nonprofit in Virginia that did a lot of work with NASA at the time on the space and location side of things. And that also I got involved with something called the Alliance for Earth Observations that brought together a lot of those actors, those different entities focused on the Earth Observations domain. So think about companies that are building instruments, but then also government agencies at the other end of the spectrum. So you have dialogue, right? And to talk about common issues. And so again, I found myself really interested in that complex interplay of interests. And from then on, afterwards, I went to Secure World Foundation, which is hopefully very familiar to the listeners of this podcast. And I did more international focus work, kind of came back to some of the research I had done in grad school. And I know we'll get to that because it relates to what I'm doing these days, but really got to work more substantively on space policy issues and understand those international aspects of that and uh, take some of the learning I have done about how to align interest and how to understand how different approaches impact a policy issue, but do it in a, in a global scale. And after that, I went to industry. I worked for a company called Harris, and now it's L3 Harris after a merger, but that was also a great experience just to understand more about how a large aerospace contractor thinks about strategic relationships. I was doing work for NASA and for other government agencies, other countries. And so it's almost like I was circling the wagons a little bit. 
And although that prepared me, I think, to then go into uh, a job I have now at NASA headquarters, science mission directorate. But so that's my path and a diverse sorts of experiences. And I really think made me a better analyst at the end of the day. Yes. You've worked in several different policy fields. You've worked in a commercial role and looking back, it's often quite good, right, to have this diverse experience. So did you plan that or was it more that it was just applying to good opportunities as they arose? Definitely happy accidents. I've never had an answer for what do I want to be when I grow up in terms of a specific job or anything like that. That's something else they tell students. If you don't have it, don't fret. You'll be trying. What we knew, though, was what attracted me to the field. So I always kept that front and center, right? But then also my skill set. I enjoy and I'm good at public speaking, writing, and research and analysis. And so I would always want to keep open to opportunities. And so when an opportunity would come across, I would look at it quite openly and I try to think about, okay, does it match those things that have been important to me up to this point? And does it match maybe a direction I want to explore, right? Because you can also think about professional opportunities is filling different gaps. Um, and so I think it's those sorts of concerns and thoughts that drove me to evaluate opportunities. I also had peer mentors, people that I could call up and say, hey, I'm applying to this job. Is that crazy? Do you think uh, there's a path there? And typically what peer mentors will do is just help you come up with good framing questions and help you understand how to approach the position yourself and so at the end, I am really happy with the path I've taken. It's not the result of a grand plan. It's like I said, more very much more tactical oriented, but I think driven by what do I see myself doing? What do I see myself being particularly good at so that I can trust that even as I'm learning that ins and outs of different jobs at the core, I know that I'm going to contribute and, and do good, right? And that's worked well. <laughs> Yeah, that's really excellent advice. So let, let's just um, bring out two points that you've mentioned here, because I want to reinforce it for the listeners. So you've mentioned the importance of having mentors. Um, you know, for me, I came to this late, and I think this is one of the big mistakes that I made that I didn't do this earlier on, actually get some mentors. I think it's really important to have an external person, just as you said, to frame the questions that you have and frame your decisions in a different sense. So it's really good advice for uh, our space policy enthusiast listeners. And then the second point that I wanted to mention that you had said is this idea that you don't necessarily have to have a grand plan. Sometimes it's not the destination, it's about the journey. And I think you've made a really good point about evaluating the, the skills that you need to develop and looking for opportunities based on that rather than some overarching kind of destination that you were uh, trying to get to. But yeah, I think that's really good advice. And especially because I will say, if you look at the titles of the jobs I've had, I've only had space policy in the title of my job in the current job I have in NASA. And actually, that's not even the official title. The official title pair government has to make job titles pretty consistent and cover two buckets. Doesn't actually say space policy analyst, but because it's not about the title, right? And so I think if you're starting out, particularly when you're new to this, you think, oh, I need to be at the National Space Council, for example, because space policy 
but National Space Policy Council, excuse me, because it's got it in the title, or I need to be drafting national space policies. You're looking for those terms, but the truth is, as you go deeper and understand what space policy is and where it occurs, you'd see that it's happening in this ecosystem and you can have really meaningful jobs that even involve all the aspects that you would need to integrate into a space policy career and or prepare you for that, even if it's not your job dar, right? And so I would describe all of the jobs I've had as as part of that narrative that really makes me a space policy analyst, even though it's not screaming space policy just by looking at the title. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's one of the things that we're hoping to achieve with this podcast, actually, is to really sort of paint the broader picture of this overall space policy ecosystem. And it's not just limited to roles in government, you know, with the title policy analyst. It's much broader, as as you've explained. So could you talk a little bit about your experiences and the sort of difference between working for industry versus working for government? So how does this compare? What are the different challenges? Sure. So, you know, both need and follow policy developments, but obviously with a very different lens, right? So industry will have opportunities to influence and advocate for specific policy outcomes and always with uh, the interest to, you know, advance particular goals of the company and, and have them be successful in the sector that they're in, right? And so, which forces you to examine issues through a very particular lens. Um, and that gives you some very interesting, I found, constraints, but also kind of freedoms, right? And so I was able to very, be very active in the space community, participate in committees and, and things like that, like professional organizations, wearing my hair as hats in a way that was very folks-supported and open, right? It's, it's very different from lobbying. It's more about, hey, I'm, I'm representing these interests in this context. And, and government wants to understand what those interests are, right? So that they can make policy decisions. Then you shift that to being in government, you know, um, policy strategies, sometimes policy direction ends up turning into new programs and activities. So you're, you're trying to understand how potential policies will impact a given agency. Will it meet goals that are consistent with other objectives that the agency is already addressing? Is there funding to meet the new, new activities that are outlined and, and those activities? So, so it really changes, I think, the focus of how you might look at the same, you know, policy directive or, or language, right? So there's that from a big picture. I, I found my experiences at least here in the DC area, and I've been here about 15 years. The community is pretty small. And so I was really interacting with people that maybe I would have interacted with anyway, wearing a different hat. Um, as my colleagues, right? And so you also get people that maybe were retired from prestigious and long government careers that go into industry um, and vice versa. And so the the environment didn't feel that different to me. It's more about what's driving my day-to-day activities and what are sort of the constraints that I have to work in. And I found also that it's almost a matter of personal choice as well, which environment you can thrive in better. And so I, I do encourage people to try to test it out, right? And also different sizes of organizations. I've worked with teams that are a thousand people. You meet everyone one day. And then I'm now, you know, like I said, at NASA, I've met everyone. <laughs> and uh, same in Harris. Harris is a 
it's a big company even when I was there before they merged with L3. And so this idea of you are in a core team that's part of a larger team is very different mindset and scenario. And, and I think, you know, plays to the strengths of some people and some people might prefer a smaller type of organization. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks, thanks for sharing that. Now, you, you've also had some work for the online publication Space Policy Online, which I should put this in the show notes because I think it's a really good source of information about the space policy field. So could you tell us a little a bit about that? How did that role happen? Definitely. So I met the editor and founder of Space Policy Online, Marcia Smith, when I did an internship here in D.C. at the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. And at the time, I think I was part of the first cohort of what's now called the Lloyd Wagner Space Policy Internship. And she was director of the Space Studies Board at the time. And so made that connection. I was still an undergraduate. But then we followed up with her, you know, as you do when you're trying to build a network and having moved to the Washington, D.C. area full time now a few years later when I came back for graduate school, reached out and she was just starting to launch her website and she welcomed the help and she knew I was a strong writer. And even then she took a big risk that I am generally grateful for because I, like I said, I didn't know much about space. And so it ended up being a really perfect uh, companion effort for me. I did it while I was studying my graduate degree. And so, again, I was fortunate because of the financial aid I received to uh, be able to focus full-time on my studies, but then do this correspondence role as a side gig to complement that experience. And so it, it was really invaluable because I think you probably found that it isn't until you have to explain something to someone else in writing or in a verbal form that you figure out whether you really understand it or not. <laughs> And, you know, I would, some of my duties sometimes would be, I'd listen to a hearing, you know, I'd go to a hearing in person or, or webcast for three or four hours. And then I had to figure out, okay, what is the news here for, for people that are going to space policy online, who are watching these issues day in and day out, they don't need to hear every single word. That's not my, my role, right? My role is to say, oh, um, you know, Congress is really concerned about X or NASA is now saying that this program is, is facing certain challenges or something like that. And so it was a crash course in, in understanding how different issues were evolving, while also, again, owning a skill that I just cannot overemphasize. Good writing skills are so essential for space policy analysts that that was really, really important. I mean, Marsha is an excellent writer. She's extremely efficient and she can half a lot in a few sentences. And so her getting me my work and over time, you know, me kind of find, finding my rhythm in that voice, I think is something I still see reflected in my written products today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the activities that you often find in a space policy type job is having to create policy briefs for decision makers and condense a complex situation and information into a very short uh, space. Writing is a, is is a critical skill in that sense. So now you have, or uh, you're on your fellowship now, but at the moment you, you have what could be described as the ultimate dream space policy job working at NASA. 
and, and not just any part of NASA, it's the, the science mission directorates, which is a kind of inspiration to many, many people around the world. So please tell us a little bit about this role. What are you doing? What does a typical day look like? Yeah, sure. So I agree. I think, I think so. The job I have now, taking breaks for the fellowship, but for my job is really kind of the culmination of a lot of work that I've done in my career. So, so I'm very proud to have gotten there and I love the team I'm, I'm a part of. So policy branch is pretty unique in that it very is the only group like that that exists at, at NASA and NASA headquarters. There's a lot of policy expertise throughout the agency, but in terms of the size and kind of the scope of work that this group does, it's pretty unique. I will quote the policy branch chief, my boss, and Steely, he describes it as a team that's focused on policy with a uppercase uh, and policy with a lowercase. So uppercase policy is, I think, what you and I think about as policy our most, most days, which is implications of, you know, treaties, regulation, and budgets, and how that trickles down into policy guidance and, and national policy documents and, and things like that. Um, we play a function in that team where we help kind of keep track of all those developments, help um, interpret when necessary internally when the U.S. government is considering policy changes. You know, there's a, there's a review process, and so we might be advocating for certain changes, additions to better reflect uh, what we see going on in the world of science. Um, so, so that's that's one one side of the work. But then the other side of the work is very internal focused, and it pertains to what I what I see as both how that big big P policy kind of impacts the agency, but also self generating things and and how NASA chooses to do uh, its processes and, and activities. And so, um, the lowercase P will include important things like you know answering the questions of the audit that are making sure NASA is spending, you know, taxpayer dollars properly. Uh, sometimes it's developing and negotiating agreements with other agencies, uh, sister agencies like the National Science Foundation, for example, so that we can actually do work together. So it's a very energetic type of work. You end up working with a lot of very different uh, diverse teams across the agency. For example, in working on those agreements, you might have to engage with the attorneys often from the legal counsel office, uh, financial folks who are tracking how the dollars are spent and all that, in addition to obviously the scientists and the engineers who know the ins and outs of, of the missions that they're, that they're working to execute. So um, all in all, I think it's a really critical function because it's one of those things that happens behind the scenes to make sure that 100 plus projects that the science mission directorate is managing at any one time are, are successful. So the idea of working for NASA, for many people, as I said, it's like a dream space sector job, but was there anything that really surprised you once, once you'd entered into the inside, let's say? Yeah, I think, I mean, the science mission directorate in particular has such a wonderful culture. I, I haven't worked for other parts of the agency. I understand the cultures are different. You know, people love working for NASA. So. Um, different doesn't necessarily mean bad or worse or, or, or yeah, it doesn't mean bad, but, but different. And I, one aspect, one word I would use to describe that environment is it's very interdisciplinary. And so something that surprised me was I expected that there would be a lot of respect towards different science disciplines, right? And the experts that work in those fields. But 
I love that there's a lot of respect for my expertise than for what I can bring to the table. Not being a scientist, not being an engineer, I can still, through my, through my work, you know, email a division director with a concern or with a question, and they know that, one, they're, they're happy to answer them and, and work with me and answer the questions and provide information that I need because they know that I'm there to support them. There's a lot of respect for what expertise I bring and, and um, my, my knowledge of my discipline. And so that surprised me. I also, I think it surprised me how much I enjoy it and how much I value it and how much the difference it means and makes when things are really busy and, and honestly, the days are long and, and it's super hectic. But, but those are the little things that happen in that cultural context that, that really make you feel like fit in an organization. Um, but, but yeah, I'll end on, on that note of the interdisciplinarity. I also love just all the passion that people bring to the science questions that really drive the work. In headquarters, people kind of say grudgingly, it's not a very pretty building. Like now we have something called the Earth Information Center, which is really cool. But outside of that, that's just where management is and, and a lot of paper, we like to say. But it's still very exciting. And there's talks and there's lectures and People love sharing the latest discoveries and developments. So whether it's a wonderful image from the James Webb Space Telescope or something we just learned about the soil in Mars, I just love that really busy leaders are still just super excited when they get to talk about stuff like that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It's one of the, the things that I think everyone loves about space is the scientific aspects, the astronomy, the astrophysics, the planetary science. It's uniquely inspirational and something that just makes everyone excited and um, enthusiastic about the sector. So that's great. Yeah. Now, you're also on a advisory committee for the Secure World Foundation. And again, I'm going to stop here and say that I'm going to put a link in the show notes to this organization because I think it's one of the important space policy organizations out there. And they have an excellent newsletter, actually, which is a really good resource and many interesting reports. They're looking to address some of the future challenges in the sector, particularly in terms of security and sustainability. So maybe you can start off by telling us, how did you get involved with the Secure World Foundation? Sure. So that I followed, you know, I was a staff member several years ago, kept in touch with them. And uh, Peter Martinez, when he came on as the uh, director, he uh, reached out because they were renewing and, and looking for new members from the advisory committee. And, and he invited me to join. And so I was incredibly pleased and honored to do that. It's, it's a very diverse set of experts from across the global space community. Um, Peter and, and the Central World staff are, are very intentional about having and hearing those diverse views, even though they don't always agree with, um, you know, with a certain way of, of looking at issues. And so I get a lot out of those engagements, but I'm also happy to, to serve as in a personal capacity and, and contribute expertise in some of our discussions. I think their work is amazing and just, yeah, meeting, meeting an important mission. You mentioned space sustainability, which is probably not a new term for listeners, but I, one way to the Describe it as it boils down to the ability to continue to use space in the future. I think at, in the beginning, there was this sense of space that's just being vast and empty. And so there were certain actions that we took, um, you know, the space 
spacefaring people. <laughs> uh, we took thinking um, uh, space was infinite, and, and uh, we've been in the last let's say ten or so years rethinking some of those actions to look more responsibly about how we use this resource because it is limited. You know, if you think about the orbits and, and space debris concerns like that, but then also even space jump, right? There's only so much. And so we're, we're in a really exciting time where um, just the diversity and the volume of space activities is incredibly exciting, but it is, it is raising a lot of severity challenges, which I think if you are interested in policy, that just means you're going to get to work on really cool issues and, and get to make a contribution. But yeah, there's definitely a lot we can talk about in terms of what's going on in the space sustainability field. And I would say Secure World is certainly the leader in, in that conversation. Yeah, so you've touched on the subject of sustainability. What do you see as some other future challenges out there that space policy advisors will be working on? I think from the very beginning, space was a domain of just nations, right? I think private sector was always there in the sense that it would help you build the rockets and, and actually execute the activities. But today, it's such a diverse set of actors in terms of nations are not the only ones who matter. We also have, you know, uh, non non-government institutions from the private sector, but then also even, you know, you have satellites that are put together by teams of students, right? So um, I think figuring out what the right roles and responsibilities among everyone should be is just going to be a, a persisting challenge as we dream of new ways to new space. And then also, honestly, figuring out the rules of the road for once it is possible to venture back out there in a, a more expansive way beyond all the work we've been doing in lower orbit, right? And so, you know, there's been some really interesting studies about the moon, one, not just a lot smaller, but then also if we're depending on certain technologies, for example, capabilities that need solar energy to be able to operate, then that automatically narrows the list of or locations that you target for some more work that you want to do. There are certain locations where we know there are resources that are particular interests, right? And so that means, okay, a lot more people are going to be trying to get to the same place. And so who has right of way? How do you handle accidents or emergencies? Uh, should they occur? How do you align uses? You know, it could be science uses, it could be commercial uses, it could be um, other types of exploratory activities that, you know, we're going to have to figure out how do we prioritize them, right? And so it's really, really complex. And, and I think... All those might think, oh, it's too early to be thinking about that, but we're starting to see lunar activity, for example, pick up, right? And so I think it's, it's going to be an area where it's going to be better to try to figure out what things are going to look like, happens that's problems, to try to avoid it in the first place, right? And so think about space debris. Well, we have a lot going on on Earth to try to minimize the generation of the debris and also think about how to... Uh, you know, collectively that's already in orbit, so it doesn't threaten uh, the lives of the astronauts up there or, or other satellites. But it's a very different problem around the, from around the moon, right? And so technologically, it's a very different problem. And so some of the policy solutions that we've come up with for the Earth environment are not going to work on the moon. So I, I say all that not to bring it down, because I actually think that's why it's amazing to encourage more people, different voices, to, to the table because it is going to take creative solutions and it is going to take, I think, people who come at it from a different perspective. 
Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we need um, to really increase the diversity of perspectives and we need to bring in people from other sectors and bring in the knowledge from other areas to really help us on this very long list of issues that you've mentioned. So one, one particular issue is the subject of international cooperation. And I think this leads nicely uh, onto your next adventure, which is the position that you've just started at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in DC, where you will research international space cooperation in Latin America. So tell us a little bit about this move and why are you interested in that subject in particular? So when I was a student in uh, the Space Policy Institute, my last kind of major paper focused on seeing Latin America space cooperation. And the time, even then, I felt that this wasn't a subject that was sufficiently covered in academic literature or even in the media. And when it did come up, I felt that it was really biased in, in some directions because it only made those developments about great power politics. And great power politics certainly have a role in, in those discussions. But it, I wanted to delve into that topic a little bit more and understand, okay, what are the drivers for decisions these countries are making? Because I wanted it to be evident that these countries are making choices, right? Um, they're not just playing along to a chess game that other people are playing. And so I did some other work, found it fascinating, um, really wanted to revisit it. And then went into a career that we've talked about. And so I think I've picked up over the years experiences that have really prepared me to revisit that work and that issue more broadly in a meaningful way. But then also it's where we are, right? So in the last 10 or so years, it's been expanded development in the space of cities in the region, including with partners. Then also just politically there, the United States has Recently, we've been talking a lot more about making commitments to engage with emerging space nations much more meaningfully. And so I think I'm revisiting this work is very timely because it's at a crux, particular time when there are more opportunities, but then there's also a need um, to hopefully inform U.S. strategy to, to work with, with actors who approach space differently and who have a standpoint think of. And it's just a function of, of, you know, coming at it from a different standpoint, right? Very different world. So I think the drivers that exist today are different from what the U.S. and, say, the Soviet Union uh, faced at the time when they got started in their space programs, right? And so I um, applied and, and was extremely fortunate to be awarded a fellowship by the Council on Foreign Relations. And that's what's allowing me to do this work at CSIS and the Americas program. I purposely wanted to revisit this question of space partnerships in the region, but not through the lens of space. I love our community, but I think sometimes we think everything begins and ends with space, and that's not the case. And so my operating assumption is that there's domestic and foreign policy drivers that are motivating these choices, and that it is to the benefit of both scholarship and also practitioners to understand it better. So I've just started. I'm hoping to you know, publish a report at the end, but then also some shorter pieces along the way. So hopefully watch this space and some interesting developments. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's super interesting. Congratulations on that. And one of the things I've noticed, um, 
I mean, I've, I've had the pleasure to attend uh, the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, and uh, it's always fascinating to see how um, emerging space nations are really been active in developing their own policies based around their national interests. Um, and personally, I've never had time to kind of delve into the reasons behind this and why, but I mean, it sounds like you're going to, so uh, that's really fascinating. So you've shared a lot of great advice uh, relating to your experience so far. So for the, the early career space policy enthusiasts that are listening to this podcast, could you give us your top three points in terms of how to start along this path? Sure. I would say first, go for it. I can attest it seems daunting. And, you know, I study political science. I'm from Puerto Rico. My parents are retired psychologists. I knew nothing about this. I knew no one who was doing this. And I still was able to, to you know, carve a path. I think you will find the space community is very welcoming. Um, it's a community that wants to do good and um, really welcomes new voices. And so if you kind of show up with commitment and integrity and passion, it's, it's, you're going to find a, a good home. So definitely go for it. I would say also find ways to engage that community and build your network and meet people. I think things like this are a way to to see that there is no set path. And even as you make choices kind of tentatively in your career, they're not the raw choice, right? They're just a choice that you're making. You can binge create into the direction you want your career to take. But a lot of that is having that something to rely on, which is that network and those colleagues and friends. So how to do that if you're in school, definitely check out the student organizations. There's so many that, that just give you an opportunity to be able to meet people that have similar interests. It might be something like the Space Generation Advisory Council, for example, or professional organizations, again, have member chapters or member rates that just allow you to start meeting people. Participate in conferences, get papers. I think it's sometimes we think of just the conference as a way to meet people, but it's also a way to engage in the dialogue, right? If you work yourself submitting papers and, and, and getting to give your own voice on some of the issues I care about. And I think the third one is, as we've talked about, you know, say yes, even to things that maybe you're not super comfortable doing, like doing a podcast or doing an interview on TV or serving, right? I, I had the privilege of serving on a board of the American Astronautical Society some years past. And maybe at the time I felt that, oh, I wonder if I'm at the right point in my career to do something like this. And if I have something to contribute or do I even have the bandwidth, right? And so it's a balancing act because it's really important for you to find the right work-life balance. And so definitely make sure that you are meeting your other needs and the other things that are important to you. But where you can find those kind of unique opportunities that um, seem attractive to you, I think go for it. And you can figure it out along the way. Sometimes I think imposter syndrome is kind of painted in the negative light of, if I don't feel like I'm 100% up to do it, I shouldn't do it. What I, you said for is, okay, I'm going to say yes, and then I'm going to work really hard to make sure I do a good job. And so I just want to just send that message that for most things that relate to being active in the space policy community, say yes first, figure it out later. Yeah, I think that is fantastic advice. I'm going to say, you know, I've been working for 20 years and sometimes I still have that feeling like, am I really belonging here? 
am I the best person? So it's not just something that happens to early career people. So thank you for sharing that. And I, I think the way around it in a way is to try and always adopt a kind of learning mindset. So just treat every opportunity that you have, even if it's a bit uncomfortable and you feel like you don't belong, just say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to learn from this. And that usually helps. So wrapping up here, what is the big picture? Where do you see yourself as part of it? Big, for me, the big picture is space is critical. Space is not the answer to everything, and I don't think it should be. I think space is part of the tool set and the solutions, right? That we need to figure out how to use even better and more to address the big challenges that we're facing. When we are facing a lot, right? Like health, so, you know, horrible natural disasters that we're seeing in parts of the world. And space can contribute to all of that. And so I see myself as helping figure out some of the governance challenges, some of the corporations, obstacles, and some of the uh, issues that, you know, human nature, we put all these obstacles in our way and make things a little harder. But it's really interesting and, 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 a, and a really meaningful way to contribute to figure out how to address those so that space can continue to be integrated in a meaningful way in our lives. Um, I do feel like I make contribution, and I know that's important for a lot of people, whether it's being a public servant or doing research that I think is answering important questions. Uh, it's, I think I go to bed at night thinking, okay, I'm doing something good. It's also fascinating and interesting and that I'm passionate about. I, I also, like I said, I don't want to equate it to, to other important things, you know, other career paths that are incredibly valuable and meaningful. It's not about what's most important, but it's about you finding something that makes sense to you, that you're good at, and that you can make a difference. And I have been extremely fortunate in this uh, career path that I chose. And I think it just goes to show you that you can take that plunge and if something feels right, you know, just go for it and, and hopefully it gets to a good place. Well, Laura, you have shared some amazing advice to all the listeners here. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. My pleasure. I can't wait to hear the other podcast interviews that you're doing. I love hearing from my peers and other colleagues. And so thank you again for the invitation. And uh, yeah, look forward to chatting again. We hope you've been inspired by our journey through space policy careers on the Space Policy Pioneers podcast. If you're passionate about carving your path in the cosmos, don't miss out head over to www.scienceinspace.co.uk to explore our exclusive space policy career coaching services and supercharge your career today. With insights from top space policy experts and a track record of helping professionals like you succeed, Science in Space is your trusted source for career growth. Please leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform your five-star rating not only shows your appreciation, but also helps us reach more space policy enthusiasts like you. Sharing the show with three friends who hold your passion for space policy or on your favorite social media platforms amplifies our mission to educate and inspire. To stay connected, follow Science and Space on LinkedIn, on X, and explore our video content on YouTube. As we continue to explore the boundless possibilities of space policy, thank you for joining us on this exciting journey. Ad Astra.